Good morning, friends. 9.06 on this Thursday. In just a second, we're going to uh, tap in to a call from Damascus. We're going to check in with Jakob Kern, who's the country director for, for all of Syria uh, with the UN's World Food Program, get some details on exactly how they're managing the logistics, the massive challenge of accommodating the needs And in some cases, I'm sure the desperate needs of literally millions of Syrians who have either been displaced and remain within the borders of their own country or have traveled, have fled to neighboring countries, including Turkey and Jordan and, and hey, elsewhere as well. As you know, Jakob Kern out of Damascus in just a moment. After that, we're going to check in with a visually impaired swimmer here in Edmonton. He's going to bring his coach as well with the Stedward Bears para swim team. They're getting set to go the distance tonight, raising awareness and raising funds so they can head to the para swimming trials in Toronto and ultimately to the Paralympics. Should be an inspiring story. We're going to get to some of your emails following a conversation yesterday about a protest at the Alberta legislature. We got hung up, and for good reason, I'll insist, on when, and I'm saying this with a smirk, when it's appropriate to use swastikas and compare political leaders to Adolf Hitler. I asserted yesterday it is very rarely, if ever, appropriate. Some of you, though, sent in some pretty interesting, pretty thoughtful emails. We're going to leave some time for that, hopefully before we take you live to Washington, D.C. The American president, our prime minister, of course, meeting through this morning. As you know, if you've been listening to the Chad Morning News, we'll take their news conference live right around 940. In the 10 o'clock hour and then moving on into 11 o'clock, we'll break down that state dinner, talk about what the prime minister and the president have been talking about, maybe what they should be talking about. And this before we speak with Mark Warner, a lawyer with a ton of experience, when you talk about trade law and labor law, how is the American-Canadian trade dynamic going to change? What does the absolute clampdown on child labor mean for imported goods and the economy? And we'll talk a bit on softwood lumber as well. And of course, as Bob just mentioned, we'll talk to Derek Fildebrandt after the 11.30 news, the official opposition Wild Rose Party taking issue, to say the least, with the appointment of Kevin Dvidiak. He's now the government's chief advisor when it comes to upcoming negotiations with AUPE and public sector unions. The thing is, as recently as last week, Dvidiak was representing the other side, a negotiator for the AUPE. So, as Fildebrandt says, is it a fox managing the hen house, or is it an astute move on the government's part? Maybe he knows AUPE strategy inside out. If he's just a gun for hire, is it the worst thing ever? We'll ask Fildebrandt what he thinks, and then we'll put it back to you. As mentioned, Jakob Kern is the country director for Syria with the United Nations World Food Program, joining us over the phone from Damascus, Syria this morning. Jakob, thank you for joining us. Can you paint a picture of exactly where you are as you speak with us? Hi, Ryan. It's good to be on the show, and glad I'm not in Edmonton. If I hear it's minus one, it's a bit warmer here in Damascus. I'm actually in my office in Damascus, which is you know, in one of the hotels, because that's the only safe place there is in the city. And uh, I'm talking from my office. 
So when someone thinks of Damascus right now, when someone pictures uh, that city in Syria, should we be picturing a city that for the most part maintains some stability? Because as you know, I'm sure the news images that we see on a daily basis, Jakob, uh, essentially portray a bombed out nation. And that's the interesting part, yeah, you're right. When you drive into Damascus, you actually don't really see anything of the war going on. Uh, life is normal, there's cars in the streets, there's shops, and people go about their business. But then I went to convoys coastline into contested areas, areas that are besieged by the opposition, armed opposition groups, and that's a 10-kilometer drive from where my office is. It's a half-an-hour drive, and you're in total destruction. And that's the, the contrast you have in the entire of Syria. You have homes, which one part of the city is more or less intact, and the other part is like a nuclear bomb had hit, and there's no stone on top of the other, and it's right next to each other. Sometimes it's one street that makes the difference, that's the front line, on one side, everything is destroyed. On the other side, life goes on as normal. Wow. Taking a look at some numbers uh, here, Jakob, to help us understand the exact uh, situation or as, as close to exact as we can get in processing what's occurring in Syria and surrounding nations. We know that back in 2011, uh, a census showed that Syria's population was just under 22 million people. Uh, as I understand it, and please, in a moment, let me know if you have any insight here. The exact figure when it comes to Syria's current population, unknown, but the UN has estimated that more than a quarter million people have been killed in this conflict, and that by the beginning of this year, by the beginning of 2016, just under five million Syrians had fled the country, and of those who remain, almost 14 million require humanitarian assistance. Are, are those numbers accurate as far as you can report? Yeah, Ryan, that, that, that's pretty much correct. I mean, we are five, almost six years into one of the most destructive crises of our time. It has lasted now longer than the World War II, and half the people have been displaced. Half the population has been forced to leave their homes, and as you said, five million left Syria, the borders of, of the country, and of the 18 million, 13 and a half are actually in urgent need of humanitarian assistance, it has caused 250,000 people have been killed and a million injured. And another figure that is really sticking in my head is 50 families have been displaced every hour, every hour of every day over the last five years since the conflict started. 50 families an hour for the last five years? Yes. I mean, it's staggering. And this is just People are constant, even now, every time there is fighting going on, we have thousands of people are moving away from, from the fighting and, and are then becoming internally displaced. The World Food Program is supporting four, four and a half million people with monthly food rations, basically for, for the past year. Uh, it's a huge operation. You can imagine feeding four million people with basic food needs is, is a huge logistical task. That's half a million tons of food that we are importing into the country. 
Jakob, our, our phone connection is, is lacking just a tiny little bit, so I'll ask you to speak up if you're at all possible. Uh, I understand the World Food Program has been operating in Syria since 1964. What has changed, uh, aside from the obvious, logistically in the last several years? I mean, you, you've, you've been there for 50 years or so. What's changed? We've been here, but mostly for the Iraqi refugees and for agricultural programs. Is the, is the voice better this way? As good as it's getting, yeah, you bet. Okay. Uh, so up to the war, we were more concerned inside Syria about the refugees from neighboring countries. And then when the war started, we, we started more or less from zero to one of the largest humanitarian operations that WFP is running in the world. It's a $700 million a year operation. And, and of course, it's a huge logistical task. Uh, also identifying people and, and finding partners that are doing the distribution. So now I have about 300 staff inside the country, and then I have staff in the surrounding countries to provide the supply lines. So uh, Beirut is one of our supply routes, Turkey, Jordan. We're not only delivering from inside Syria, we also deliver cross-border from Jordan into the south of Syria and from Turkey into the north in the opposition-controlled areas. So about a third of our support goes to, comes through the cross-border uh, deliveries. You describe uh, the, the dire circumstances that many Syrians are in. You, you said that some pockets resemble areas that may have been uh, sustained a, a nuclear attack when it comes to the evisceration of buildings and what the landscape looks like. Now, we know uh, right now it's, it's, it's almost a cacophony over in Syria with the number of rebel groups that are fighting. It's, it's hardly Army A versus Army B. So how are you at the World Food Program gaining unrestricted and safe access to those who desperately need you? How are you managing that challenge? The, the 4 million is people in areas that are relatively stable, but then there's 500,000 people that are in towns or parts of the city that are completely surrounded by either government or ISIS or other groups. So they are besieged. And those are the, the, the tricky convoys that we do cross line. You can imagine if you go with 50 trucks across uh, an active front line, you have to make sure that all sides are actually agreeing this is the route you take. You're not going to attack that convoy, and we will make sure that uh, the convoy is safe going in. I've done about six or seven by now in the last few weeks. Uh, I can just tell you in, in Mwadamiya, which is a suburb of, of Damascus, 10 kilometers from the office, you get to the last government checkpoint, and I, in one convoy I waited 20 hours to get through, so you have to negotiate your way through, of course, and then you get in the buffer zone, the no man's land where nobody is, and then you get into another checkpoint of the opposition, and then you get into it and driving into those cities where you don't see a single glass window anymore. Every building is partly destroyed and some are totally destroyed. It's like driving through a horror movie and you have real people in there, children, 
women, men that uh, that still live in those cities with very little water, no electricity, it's pitch dark, uh, no food, no no basic needs. I mean, for example, people asking for pampers because they don't have any way of uh, for the babies. They're asking for basic basic items. And of course, food, and so that's that's the majority of these convoys at the beginning. So, Jakob, I mean, you describe a situation for us where some families are, are are doing everything they can to remain in their homes, to stay in their cities, but with no food, water, electricity, medical supplies, diapers available. I know that that fuel prices have absolutely, uh, for the most part, become unattainable for most people. Uh, what are these families to do? I mean, some people, even if they don't want to become refugees have, have been forced into that position. This is hard. There seems to be somewhat of a misconception in some Western nations that, that these are opportunists that have just been waiting for a better, uh, you know, a better chance, a better life in another country. I, I would imagine your report would indicate uh, probably based on your firsthand experience, quite the opposite. For starters, the ones that are in besieged areas, these 500,000, they have no way of going out. In besieged means besieged. There's nothing going in, nothing going out. They are off off the the rest of the world. So there's people cannot move between those front lines. Uh, the others. When I talk to people, even in in a dire situation like this, they have been in there for for years. They cannot move out. I ask them, what do you want me to convey to the rest of the world? They say, we want peace. We had enough. We want peace, and we want our life back. And some actually said. We don't really want food aid. We don't want to depend on food aid. We want, we want to get our life back and earn our, our food ourselves. And they want to get back to their, their home. They want to get back to their jobs. The Syrian people are quite different to a lot of other refugees. They want to come back. So, and and the ones that flee, they flee because they don't have a place to stay anymore. They don't have a place to be. Uh, even our own staff, a lot of them have been relocated one, two, three times because the area has been bombed, so they had to move to another safer place. So they, they keep moving. And my driver, for example, he went into that decision. He said, can I take 10 minutes and go and see whether my house is still standing? He came from that city, and he happened to be on the other side when the besiegement started. But you have a lot of children that are inside and the parents are outside they haven't seen each other for two years because they can't go in or out Jakob I don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not it's a huge question but how do we restore peace in Syria there is hope there is a ceasefire since the 27th of February and it's by and large holding so we don't really hear the bombardments anymore in the night, even from where we stay in Damascus. You could hear it every night, or most nights you could hear explosions, uh, bombs dropping. That is quiet. It's quite quiet. And when we went on last Sunday, I went on a convoy to a, another area, and kids were actually playing football outside. And that's mm. probably the first time in five years that they felt safe enough to play football outside in the open and we're not afraid of getting hit by a sniper or by bombs. So there's hope that the ceasefire is holding for so two weeks it has held. If that's the case, 
there is hope that there will be peace talks and and eventually will come back. But this country needs a lot to rebuild. That's not something that will happen overnight. To say the very least. Jakob Kern is the country director for Syria with the United Nations World Food Program. We're very grateful that you took the time to speak with us from Damascus uh, this morning. I would imagine it's not morning for you, Jakob. Thank you for your time. It's also a pleasure to be there. Thank you. You bet. That's Jakob Kern. When we come back, an inspiring story right here in Edmonton. A visually impaired swimmer who's going the distance tonight and aiming big. We'll be right back. 9.26 on this Thursday morning. Uh, I was going to say a, a couple special guests in studio, but more accurately, a few. Uh, for starters, Keith Gallard, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Keith, you're a swimmer. Uh, in a more detailed sense, you're, you're a visually impaired swimmer, correct? Yes, I'm actually totally blind. You're completely blind. Correct. Uh, you've brought in Newberg with you. Newberg is my third guide dog, fresh out of Guide Dog for the Blinds School in San Rafael, California. An absolutely beautiful companion, and you've brought your swim coach with you as well, Nathan Kondracek. Did I say that correctly, Nathan? Yes, you did. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Of course, both Thank of you, you representing the Stedward Bears para swim team. Uh, you're going the distance tonight, Keith. What's this all about? Uh, this is an annual fundraiser that is put on through the Stedward Center and the University of Alberta and the uh, Stedward Bears Swimming Program and the U of A uh, uh, Golden Bears Swimming Program to raise money to support all programs uh, for uh, not only the Stedward Bears but the University uh, Swim Program in general. Now, of course, uh, the reason why this uh, event tonight at the U of A's West Pool is so significant, Nathan, is because your athletes, the athletes you train, are ultimately hoping to achieve the Paralympics. That's right. Yes, we uh, we have six athletes this year that are going to head to Paralympic trials in April. So it's just around the corner. We have uh, a lot of travel to do, and we hope to continue going to national and international events in the next several years. Keith, uh, were you born blind? I was born with a, um, a congenital condition called retinitis pigmentosa. So I was legally blind all my life, but I was uh, visually impaired, what I like to uh, call high partial vision so I was able to get around without the use of a white cane and a service dog however uh, one of the uh, factors of retinitis pigmentosa is a gradual degenerative process of vision so a uh, long answer to a short question is yes I had sight now I do not the the adjustment for some of the, I mean I, I look at this and, and I said to our listeners before you came in I said this is going to be an inspiring story I assure you that but I imagine you have overcome incredible challenges I can't even imagine and I'm not trying to be cute here getting into a swimming pool and just even closing my eyes and trying to swim lengths, let alone race. How have you managed these challenges? There are many different ways. First of all, a lot of fortitude, because you're right. If you want to swim at a high level in a confined space, in a pool that is basically concrete, uh, you have to consider safety first. Uh, balancing with performance. So uh, we have tried innovative ways to ensure that I'm safe. The uh, sort of standard method is to use uh, live people and actually that's the only method at a competition that will tap me on the top of the head to tell me when I'm 
getting close to the wall. Uh, and it's an art because I need that tap to be kind of precise so I can conduct my flip turn in, in a fashion that keeps me competitive. Uh, in a training situation, we've tried different innovations. One was a sprinkler where uh, sprinklered water would hit my head when I'm getting close to the wall. Ah. But what we're using now is a rubber cord that's tied between lane ropes uh, near each end of the pool. So when I bump into that, I know I'm getting ready and I have to do my turn. Nathan, I, you're watching Keith talk and I feel like I can see this, this sense of pride uh, that a coach has for his athletes. Athletes. It must be incredible to work with Keith and the rest of your swimmers. It is. We uh, Keith did an incredible job describing one of the unique stories and processes we've went through over three years to kind of determine the safest and most effective way for him to swim. We've gone from requiring so many people to support him to now providing him with independence. We have fashioned these um, stretch cords so that he can even put them in on his own, so he can go to the pool on his own, that kind of thing. So, well, Keith, really cool. why is swimming so important to you? Wow, we don't have enough time to really go into that in detail, Ryan, but I, I will say that it has changed my life in that uh, uh, I came from a, a, a life circumstance where I was pretty unhealthy. I had a sedentary job and I, I was extremely overweight. I was a smoker and after getting introduced to this program through another blind friend of mine, uh, it started from a way to start to get healthy where I could barely make it across 25 meters of a pool to two and a half years later, I'm now going to a Paralympic trial. So, I mean, that story in itself is how important this program is to me, not to mention that I swim with uh, individuals from all age groups and socio-economical backgrounds who have all different disabilities, and uh, they're com completely inspiring to me, uh, and uh, I draw tons of energy from them. So, I mean, I... I I don't want to start crying here, but it is a life-changing event. Well, I'm smiling so big my face hurts. I don't know if you can see it, but I am. I can sense it. Thank you for being here today. I, I, we've, we've just planted a seed right now, and I hope that the stands are packed tonight at the University of Alberta West Pool. What time does it all get going, Nathan? Oh, yeah. We, uh, we start around 5.30 tonight, and uh, we have big raffle. We'll have a DJ. It should be a lot of So it's a big event. Yeah, absolutely. And if people want to donate to this to send swimmers like Keith to the Paralympic Games, ultimately, they can just check out the Stedward Center website. That's right. And you should have our link to donate on your website as 630ched.com. Well. Gentlemen, thanks for being here. The Stedward Bears para-swim team in action tonight. Go get them. Just send money. Just send money. <laughs> Here's the news. Thank you. 937. This news conference uh, with President Obama, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, was due to kick off three minutes from now, but they went into it early, about 25 minutes early, just outside the White House. Good thing our team was on it. So here it is. We've been recording, rolling tape, as they say, on this news availability. So it's not exactly live, but we want to bring you President Barack Obama and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's comments in their entirety. So here it is, uh, as first said, at live at 9.14 Mountain Standard Time, comments from U.S. President Barack Obama following a summit meeting with our Prime Minister. Well, once again, I want to welcome Prime Minister Trudeau to the White House. We just completed a very productive meeting, uh, although I regret to inform you that we still have not uh, reached agreement on hockey, um, uh, it, but it is not interfering with the rest of our bilateral relationship. Uh, as I said earlier, this visit reflects something we Americans don't always say enough, and that is how much we value our great alliance and partnership with our uh, friends up north. 
were woven together so deeply as societies, as economies, um, that it's sometimes easy to forget how truly remarkable our relationship is. Uh, a shared border more than 5,000 miles that is the longest between any two nations in the world. Uh, every day we do some $2 billion in trade and investment, and that's the largest bilateral economic relationship in the world. Every day more than 400,000 Americans and Canadians cross the border. Workers, business people, students, tourists, neighbors. And of course, every time we have a presidential election, our friends to the north uh, have to brace for an exodus of Americans who swear they'll move to Canada if the guy from the other party wins. Uh, and uh, so, but typically it turns out fine. Um, This is now my second meeting with Justin. I'm uh, grateful that I have him as a partner. Uh, we've got a common outlook on what our nations can achieve together. Uh, he campaigned on a message of hope and of change. His positive and optimistic vision is inspiring young people uh, at home. He's governing with a commitment to inclusivity and equality. On the world stage, his country is leading on climate change and cares deeply about development. So from my perspective, uh, what's not to like. Um, of course, no two nations agree on everything. Our countries are no different. But in terms of our interests, our values, how we approach the world, uh, few countries match up the way the United States and Canada uh, do. And given our work together today, I can say, and I believe the Prime Minister would agree, that when it comes to the central challenges that we face, our two nations are more closely aligned than ever. We want to make it easier to trade and invest with one another. America is already the top destination for Canadian exports, and Canada is the top market for U.S. exports, which support about 1.7 million good-paying American jobs. When so many of our products, like autos, are built on both sides of the border in an integrated supply chain, uh, this co-production makes us more competitive in the global economy as a whole. And we want to keep it that way. So we've instructed our teams to stay focused on making it even easier for goods and people to move back and forth across the borders, including reducing bottlenecks and streamlining regulations. Uh, we discussed how to move forward with the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. And today we also reaffirmed our determination to move ahead with an agreement to pre-clear travelers through immigration and customs, making it even easier for Canadians and Americans to travel and visit and do business together. As NATO allies, we're united against the threat of terrorism. Canada is an extraordinarily valued member of the global coalition fighting ISIL, tripling its personnel to help train and advise forces in Iraq, stepping up its intelligence efforts in the region, and providing critical humanitarian support. We're working closely together to prevent the flow of foreign fighters, and today we agreed to share more information including with respect to our no-fly lists and full implementation of our entry-exit system, uh, even as we uphold the privacy and civil liberties of our respective citizens. In Syria, the cessation of hostilities has led to a measurable drop in violence in the civil war. And the United States and Canada continue to be leaders in getting humanitarian aid to Syrians who are in desperate need. Meanwhile, our two countries continue to safely welcome refugees from that conflict. And I want to commend Justin and the Canadian people once again for their uh, 
compassionate leadership on this front. I'm especially pleased to say that the United States and Canada are fully united in combating climate change. As the first U.S. President to visit the Arctic, I saw how both of our nations are threatened by rising seas, melting permafrost, disappearing glaciers and sea ice. And so we are focusing on making sure the Paris Agreement is fully implemented and we're working to double our investments in clean energy research and development. Uh, today we're also announcing some new steps. Canada is joining us in our aggressive goal to bring down methane emissions in the oil and gas sectors in both of our countries. And together we're going to move swiftly to establish comprehensive standards to meet that goal. We're also going to work together to phase down uh, HFCs and to limit carbon emissions from international aviation. We're announcing a new climate and science partnership to protect the Arctic and its people. And later this year, I'll welcome our partners, including Canada, uh, to our White House Science Ministerial on the Arctic to deepen our cooperation in this vital region. We're also grateful for Canada's partnership as we renew America's leadership across the hemisphere. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I want to thank you for Canada's continuing support for our new chapter of engagement with the Cuban people, uh, which I will continue with my upcoming visit to Cuba uh, next week. We're going to work to help Colombia achieve peace and remove the deadly legacy of landmines there. And our scientists and public health professionals will work with partners across the hemisphere to prevent the spread of the Zika virus and work together actively for diagnostic and uh, vaccines that can make a real difference. And finally, our shared values, our commitment to human development and dignity of all people continue to guide our work as global partners. Through the global health security agenda, we're stepping up our efforts to prevent outbreaks of diseases from becoming epidemics. We are urgently working to help Ethiopia deal with the worst drought in half a century. Uh, today our spouses, uh, Michelle and Sophie, are reaffirming our commitment to the health and education of young women and girls around the world. And Canada will be joining our Power Africa initiative to bring electricity, including renewable energy, to homes and businesses across the continent and help lift people out of poverty. And those are our values at work. So uh, again, Justin, I want to thank you for your partnership. I believe we've laid the foundation for even greater cooperation for our countries for years to come. And I'd like to think that it is only the beginning. I look forward to welcoming you back for the Nuclear Security Summit in a few weeks. I'm pleased that we were able to announce the next North American Leaders Summit uh, that will be in Canada this summer. Uh, the Prime Minister has invited me to address the Canadian Parliament, and that's a great honor. I look forward to the opportunity to speak directly to the Canadian people about the extraordinary future that we can build together. So that's U.S. President Barack Obama just moments ago outside the White House following a summit meeting with our Prime Minister. Is it just me or is it a little weird that he calls him Justin? Is that weird? Like if Jean Chrétien were to say I had a great meeting with Bill, talking about Clinton, or, or I, I do know that, that in past Barack Obama did refer to Stephen Harper as Steve. I did hear it a couple of times. Is it strategic, maybe? Is it weird or, or, or not? I don't know. It just, it just kind of made me go, eh? Let me know what you think on the text line to 630-630. We'll fit in a quick break. When we come back, we'll bring you exactly what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had to say in response, again, just moments ago from Washington, D.C.
As you know, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the Canadian delegation down in Washington, D.C., meeting with President Barack Obama. It's the first visit of a Canadian Prime Minister to the White House in about 20 years. Now, they went a little early in their media availability. We intended to carry it live, but here it is just a few moments ago. What Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had to say to reporters gathered outside the White House. Good morning, everyone. It's an honour to be here. As I've reflected on the storied relationship between our two great countries, I constantly return to President Kennedy's wise words in our friendship that what unites us is far greater than what divides us. And as President Obama mentioned earlier, if geography made us neighbours, then shared values made us kindred spirits, and it is our choices individually and collectively, that make us friends. That friendship, matched by much hard work, has allowed us to do great things throughout our history, from the beaches of Normandy to the Free Trade Agreement and now, today, on climate change. The President and I share a common goal. We want a clean growth economy that continues to provide good jobs and great opportunities for all of our citizens. And I'm confident that by working together, we'll get there sooner than we think. Let's take the Paris Agreement, for example. That agreement is both a symbolic declaration of global cooperation on climate change, as well as a practical guide for growing our economies in a responsible and sustainable way. Canada and the U.S. have committed to signing the agreement as soon as possible. We know that our international partners expect and indeed need leadership from us on this issue. The President and I have announced today that we'll take ambitious action to reduce methane emissions nearly by half from the oil and gas sector, reduce use and emissions of hydrofluorocarbons, and implement aligned greenhouse gas emission standards for heavy-duty vehicles, amongst other plans, to flight climate change. We also announced a new partnership aiming to develop a sustainable economy in the Arctic. This partnership foresees new standards based on scientific data from fishing in the high seas of the Arctic as well as new standards to ensure maritime transport with less emissions. The partnership will also promote sustainable development in the region in addition to putting the bar higher in terms of preserving the biodiversity in the Arctic. We have also decided to make our borders both more open and more safe by agreeing of pre-clearing at the Billy Bishop Airport in in Toronto and the Jean Lesage Airport in, in Quebec, as well as the railroad stations in Montreal and Vancouver. Moreover, we were creating a US-Canada working group in the next 60 days on the recourses to access how we will resolve errors of identity on the uh, no-fly lists. President and I acknowledge the fundamental and wholly unique economic relationship between Canada and the United States. We have historically been each other's largest trading partners. Each and every day, over $2.4 billion worth of goods and services 
across the border. Today, we reaffirmed our commitment to streamlining trade between our countries. Overall, the President and I agree on many things, including, of paramount importance, the direction we want to take our countries in to ensure a clean and prosperous future. We've made tremendous progress on many issues. Unfortunately, I will leave town with my beloved Expos still here in Washington. You can't have everything. I'd like to conclude by extending my deepest thanks to Barack for his leadership on the climate change file to date. I want to assure the American people that they have a real partner in Canada. Canada and the U.S. will stand side by side to confront the pressing needs that face not only our two countries, but the entire planet. I'm very much looking forward to the remainder of my time here in Washington, so thank you again for your leadership and your friendship. I know that our two countries can achieve great things by working together as allies and as friends, as we have done so many times before. Merci beaucoup, Barack. That's our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, just moments ago outside the White House following a meeting uh, with President Barack Obama. Of course, the visit will continue, a state dinner tonight, etc. We'll talk about this further through this morning's show. Many of you sharing your opinions on whether or not it's disrespectful for Obama to refer to Trudeau as Justin. We'll get to that coming up right after these news headlines.